Hello and welcome to On Landscape. I'm here with Joe Cornish and David Ward and we are going to have a, a, a really interesting 40-minute talk on tripods. Oh, what better oh, co- <laughs> expectations, Tim, expectations. <laughs> what better subject for a, for a lovely snowy day in, in the Highlands? I could oh. be outside, actually. Actually, it's gone, going dark now, so I'm probably okay. Um, yes, well, I've recently done an article on travel tripods so I've had, uh, I think I had 11 tripods on Tyrannic Moor. I'm sure there's lots of people going past and wondering where the workshop had disappeared to as they're all set up in a row. Um, and and it, was, it was quite interesting to, to, to see how technology's moved on um, after my first tripod, which was an old Velbon. In fact, no, my first tripod was a slick tripod right. from the 1980s. Is it? So, is it- is it possible that we should mention the tripod song, Joe? Probably not. I think really. not. I think not. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Not to, heard this before. Uh, well, it was to the tune of the Marines marching song. I don't know yeah. what I've been told. Uh, and um, Joe and I penned it on our first ever trip to Iceland in 1999. Um, but no, I, I, neither of us can remember the words, can we, Joe? <laughs> Which is probably just as well. Well, let, let's let's hark back to when um, when you both were starting your photography careers, and tripods were slightly heavier, I imagine, and, and especially the studio tripods you would have worked with down yeah, in London. I had an aluminium Gitzo tripod. Um, I never went. I was never mad enough to have the one with the chromelia, with the, the the kind of thing that made the the column go up and down. But it was still. I don't know what it would have weighed four or five kilos plus the pan and tilt head which was also a big lump of aluminium with long handles sticking out that almost invariably bashed you in the leg as you were climbing and um you know the whole thing was just appalling really it wasn't even particularly well designed i didn't think is this the main reason why photographers had assistance in those days just (laughs) to carry the gear um (laughs) yeah maybe maybe um uh yeah, and um, it 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 did the job. Um, it didn't. Uh, my one just about got to eye level, I think, um, and it was quite awkward to move around. It had a center column, so I couldn't get it too low. It didn't have any of these kind of swish things where you could stick the column out one side or the other. The only advantage was that you could turn the column upside down, so you could put the put the head between the legs of the tripod. Um, and get the the camera low that way, but it wasn't very kind of easy to do. Yeah. Um, all in all, it was a pretty appalling thing, really. If I think back to it, um, was that something you would have used in the field? Is that right? Yeah, time? yeah, that's yeah. that's what I used with the. So I had a Linoff um, Technica at the time. Yeah, the tri- yeah. the tripod probably weighed twice as much as the camera. I should think. Um, yeah, easily twice as much as the camera actually people accepted the weight of large format just think because in comparison they were not the major weight yeah i mean i didn't used to i only used to have a couple of lenses um fairly stripped down kit i suppose in some respects but um uh if i think now uh, you know the difference with the carbon fiber is just incredible really um and you must have, did you start with an aluminium tripod? You must have done, Joe, I guess. I did, yes. Yeah, uh, I mean, what you're describing, David, is is from the 80s. And uh, yeah. w- when my my first uh, working experiences after uni were in Washington, D.C., and uh, the guy I worked for there as an assistant, he also had a jitsu, sounds very like the one that you had, only maybe even bigger. And he used to call it the frog, because it was the French. frog? the frog <laughs> oh, yeah. um, and he hated it but he hated it because he didn't like carrying it so I ended up doing most of it well I did all the carrying so, because so Tim was, was correct then. he was, was yes. the yeah absolutely <laughs> my, but my personal first tripod was a Manfrotto 055 and I, I think that uh, model it still exists or something very it definitely very still exists. similar so they've yeah. evolved it and that was that was actually one of the first tripods that you could spread the legs on uh, it's a nice little built-in uh, mechanism, and it, it was very, very good, I must say. Um, I think I probably had that for 10 years uh, with one of those traditional handled pan-and-tilt heads on it, um, yeah. but with a quick release, a sort of hex plate quick release, I think it was. And we didn't, you know, wasn't much variety 
you know, it's amazing thinking of those 11 tripods out on Rannoch Moor, and that was just the travel tripods. You know, back yeah. back then, you're lucky if there were 11 tripods in total um, on sale. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and they were all pretty heavy, if they were any good. If they weren't heavy, then they weren't any good. I mean, on, yeah. honestly, yeah. there was a trade-off like that. Um, and the really, the big change, I don't know if this is premature in this discussion, but the big change came in about 1995, when the first carbon fibre tripods appeared um and were they were they a bit of a revelation at the time were they well they were they were they were a revolution as well but they were a financial yeah. revolution because uh you know they they the price of a carbon fiber travel was basically two and a half to three times that of an aluminium one which probably meant that for many of us it, it yeah it seemed like a bit of a tall order depending on how we were doing and we didn't really know whether they would uh, you know, prove effective or, or strong enough, robust enough, you know, to, to stand professional use. Yeah, and there was there was some um, kind of uh, folk tales going around about them cracking in extremely cold conditions and things like that as well, weren't yeah. there? Yeah. Sorry. There was a fair amount of scepticism, I think, to start off with. About well, there was, them. but it, it changed quickly because uh, two, well, three main three main reasons uh the first obviously weight massive advantage in terms of you know it could be uh, almost half the weight for the same size of tripod uh secondly they they it, it soon became clear they actually also damped vibration better than aluminium which is not an inconsiderable uh point and then the thirdly they're also not so cold to the touch so for a lot of us working in the cold you know, aluminium tripods were were, were pretty horrible, um, you know, to yeah. use, and and carbon fibre is a heck of a lot better. So, yeah, I think I think I probably bought my first one about three years after they first appeared. Yeah, being a poor we... poor church mouse, I think mine was sometime later than that. But yeah, <laughs> it was quite. Just it, I remember it. <laughs> I remember it being quite a shock when I got my first expensive tripod. In fact, I didn't buy my first expensive tripod. I did a website for someone and I asked them, if you like it, buy me a nice tripod. So they got me a top of the range Gitzo and I was horrified to find out it was over a thousand pound and that was 12 years ago. Um, and when my first tripod would have been 60 pounds or 70 pounds or whatever. Right. Oh, and I think they might have come down since then. They seem to be uh-huh. cheaper than they used to be. Yeah. I think yeah well, they- I suppose it's difficult for them to justify the price when Manfrotto and Gitzo same company same and the the carbon fiber is made in the same factory i think so yeah. it's h- hard for you to justify that the jitso was so much more expensive than the manfrotto really um and i think the technology for making the the carbon fiber tubes is probably quite a lot less expensive now than it than it used to be uh, it's a fairly common material in all sorts of places now isn't it um, very much so yeah and i was reading about it recently that it's uh, it's actually recyclable or partly recyclable now as well and surely it, it's not a carbon fiber it cannot be a rare earth element can it so no, it's getting rid of the resin generally and the, and trying to get the carbon stretched filaments out well the, the great so. thing is it, it did make a big difference and um that that's uh, that and and actually really most certainly most landscape photographers i'd say now that's that's what they would first think of getting and probably should think of getting you think were there any any problems at the time going from a heavy heavy tripod to a light tripod i mean it's there's there's one thing that weight does bring with, with it is stability and uh yeah I, I was look i was looking around some old pictures of large format photographers from the victorian era seeing if they were using uh tripods with spikes and they just used massive wheelbarrows essentially uh <laughs> so it probably weighed much as a horse and cart so there must be a point where the weight becomes a bit of a disadvantage i'm not sure if that was noticed I think I think um, on that on, sorry David on that note yeah. in very briefly I, you know the the Carlton Watkins book that uh, you and I have both been reading recently uh, relays the fact that Carlton Watkins carried his gear around in a railway carriage so you know if you think a wheelbarrow is bad <laughs> there's 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 levels and levels I mean personally I think I think that uh, the weight has really been a problem um, partly because I think there's a certain compensation because of the damping effect of uh, the, of the material is is better. A lot of people have uh, have used techniques such as weighing their tripods down with stones, with b- bags suspended underneath, or 
perhaps with a with a strong bungee cord you can also you know have um a foot on the ground with with that if you if you're in the wind i mean personally i i have never used those techniques because i haven't found them than necessary but maybe it's because i don't work in dangerous enough conditions oh yeah right <laughs> I've, seen I've, you on, I've seen you working yeah. in a gale <laughs> so um yeah i mean the, the bag one's an interesting one isn't it a lot of people um go for that and you have a you you take a string bag around with you and put rocks in it i've never thought that was a very good idea because you're basically suspending a pendulum from the underside of the tripod and if it's really windy that thing's gonna move around and you're actually going to get movement the, yeah, the way got, to do it's got to touch the ground essentially hasn't it if they're going to do that yeah but if it touches the ground it's not actually weighing it down either is it so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um so the the way that you and i joe i think we did experiment with this was to get a strong nylon an inelastic nylon cord tie it on the hook put it underneath your boot and pull it tight and basically you're pulling the tripod into the ground and that should make it more stable but um the with 5.4, you know, when we were using cameras with, with essentially the aerodynamics of a sub post office, it, you know, it's very difficult to, to stop um, vibration from the wind. Um, it's very difficult to do it because it, it, if it's not the tripod itself, there was quite often with the old pan and tilt heads, there would be a little bit of um, kind of flex in the, in the mechanism. Even when you screwed it up tight, there would be something that moved a little bit. It was not, not easy to to get complete stillness so i think a lot of the time we just didn't do stuff when it was really really windy it's like yeah it's not a five four day no yeah no, that's true and and uh, and the other the other technique that we did use and still do use actually is if you're working with your with the wind behind you at least you can you can shelter the tripod the camera significantly by you know creating a sort of with your jacket a little bit of a, of a windbreak for it and that's a perfectly effective technique and still is certainly is a with a smaller camera it's it's a very effective technique yeah mm. but even straight into the wind it's crosswinds that give you more vibration now i have shot yeah. on the coast in the hebrides in in yeah approaching a gale that was coming straight at me and the, i didn't really get any problems with camera shaking that because it's 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 not giving you so much side to side movement which is what's going to be obvious isn't it um and i Sorry, at least now, uh, you know, shooting digitally, if you, you know, if you need to check for detail, sharpness, you can do, whereas obviously with film you couldn't. So you just had to pretty much go on experience uh, as to whether you thought during the exposure uh, there had been vibration. Yeah. And I, sh yeah. And I should say that the wind is the main issue, isn't it, really? Because it's, um, e even a rubbish tripod would work on a non-windy day as long as you've got it settled and you're not walking around it too much. Correct. Yeah. yeah. So it's it's trying to prevent that. I carried a small little golfing, you know, like these windproof golfing brollies that are that you can get smaller ones, the collapsible ones. And I used that when we were in Iceland once with uh, Daniel Bergman taking a photograph, and we couldn't get out the car because the the doors were shut from, with the wind. Uh, and yeah, I've, I've put a, I've put a little extract in a recent an article going live today on tripod spikes about trying to get that picture. And using the brolly to shade the camera and waiting for lulls in the wind, etc. But you mentioned tripod heads as well. I mean, that's a that's a big thing that's advanced over the years. I know both of you used to use the very large Manfrotto geared heads. Um, were they were they around around for a long time? Uh, yeah, I mean, the four ten. I used the smaller of the two, and I think you had both. I think didn't you, Joe? I think you I had both. Um, yeah. So the four ten. I don't know when I would have got my first one. Round about. 99 or something like that i think maybe yep. um yep. uh and um I, they, they're very good it's lovely to have that fine control there was so often with clients on workshops you know they, they they're doing a seaside scene or they've got a you know perfectly flat horizon with a with a, a lock or something and you tighten it up and it just shifts a little bit with the old pan and tilt so it was great to have the fine control with the the geared head and, and if you're doing something rectilinear like a building it's it's perfect for that um the only thing i found with the manfrotto's was that they you get quite a lot of wear eventually because you're using the same section of the cog um, basically about 120 degrees on the on the on the two um axes um and so it starts to wear the material for the cog and the material for the worm gear are uh, are different, so they wear at different rates, which is not. Oh, I see. Not so you get some backlash. 
yeah not a brilliant piece of engineering really so you had to take the whole thing apart and move the move the cog round by 120 degrees and then put it back together and then you had nice tight fit again for a while <laughs> yeah um, but you, did, you didn't have to have much choice in geared heads at the time did you that was it really that was uh, it yeah yeah it was yeah yeah that was it, it the was... interesting thing about that is is that 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 design which is a cheap is you know with with respect to the engineering of it is a cheap uh, solution and a, a good solution if it weren't for the fact that the materials are not that clever as David describes has now been uh, adopted uh, can I say adopted that's probably a euphemism for stolen um, by uh, Benro I believe who actually make a yeah. kind of superior version of uh, of the of the 410 head the original 410 head and it's very very yeah. good I must say a lot, um, a lot lighter I think as well is it it's good value and be- for money better too. made I think yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah and it's really quite cheap now isn't it yeah yeah um, but there's there's quite a lot of choices now, and I think you both use different solutions, don't you? Yeah, I think I think Joe has the Borg cube. I think yeah. <laughs> the Borg. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, I think well, we probably better to talk a little bit about which each of us does use because I think it, it is interesting. But you know, just to make the point, reinforce the point, geared heads makes total sense for landscape photography because of the precision of uh, composition is our thing, isn't it? Really, I mean, we don't need to be able to do things incredibly fast with a tripod head but you do need to be very precise so not having to tighten up which is what David was saying you know which inevitably seems to lead to a little bit of movement which you used to have with the mm. old type tripods you know, nearly just, every ball head I've had does that yeah exactly and and so the, these are great yes I personally use the Arca Swiss Cube which is ridiculously expensive but it's a beautiful piece of kit and it really really works well and it's it's quite fast uh, the the action on it is fast and the beauty of it is that the camera barely moves it rotates around more or less around the axis of the lens so for a large camera particularly it's it's ideal you used the Lindhoff micro i think before that did you which yeah. didn't have a great range of movement i think that was the issue same, that, same principle uh the design is very similar and it's a lot cheaper so it's a very tempting option for a, for a lot of people and actually as a studio as a studio tripod head, the, the 3D Micro is brilliant because it's so precise. It's absolutely rock solid. But the action is really, if you, if you think of the screw thread on it, it's very, very, very shallow, which means that it takes a long time to, uh, to turn to position. And when you do, your maximum difference is 12 degrees in each direction. So oh. you've got very limited articulation. So that means that if you are using it in the field, you either need uh, a leveling head at the very least to make it workable, and you still often end up having to manipulate the legs of the tripod to get the position that you desire. Whereas, that, that would ex- sorry, the cube just has 90 degree movements. So uh, because it's got this one um, plane where you you can upend um, one of the one of the planes of of the tilt, which really works very well. That would explain, I think it was Greg Whitten who was showing me his, he's got an arc, uh, a zero ball or something, which has a little micro adjust head on it. So you've got basically a ball head with a geared fine movement, which seems quite a nice solution. Yeah. And what do you use, David? Um, I've got the uh, Arca Swiss D4 geared head, which um, is smaller than the Manfrotto that we mentioned earlier um, and absolutely beautifully engineered, fantastic piece of yes. kit. Um and uh, I've, it's been dropped in salty rock pools and blown over a couple of times and it still works perfectly. It still feels, you know, just, just like a fantastically uh, well-made thing. Um, and uh, I think it's the best tripod head I've ever had by a, a long way. I, I was interested that Joe said that he thinks the um, the cube is fast because I don't consider it to be fast. <laughs> um, Once you build the muscles up in your fingers and arms, it's... <laughs> Well, the, I mean, the good thing about the D4, like the um, uh, like the Manfrotto, is that you can do a quick release, so you can undo the the geared bit, so you can move it quickly to a position and then redo the uh, the lock, so that the gears take over. Um, so I, I like that aspect of it, yeah. um, and I, and I like the the size as well. I mean, I don't, I, the cube. How much does the cube weigh? A kilo? I think, or? Un, I think it's under. It's yeah. under a kilo. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think it's point it's point quite, seven, not point seven, something right. like that. For, very similar, I think, to the uh, Harker, the um, D5. The D4. D4. D4, sorry. Yeah. 
Are they the same sort of weight? Are they? That's that's is interesting because yeah. because the cube's quite a lot bigger, isn't it? Yeah. Um, it's a it's it's quite a spatial. Uh, well, how, how can I put it? There, there's a lot of space in the design. That's it. Yeah, it's not very densely packed. No, that's it's like it. a hollow. Yeah. Thing. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. I use I use the cube um, mainly for me because I I wanted one that would work with the ten eight and it's got enough stiffness in it, which is probably what you don't like about it because it is stiff. Um, which will hold the, the 1080 even when it's sticking out to one side, like seven and a half kilograms at about a foot away from the, the tripod head, which is quite quite strong. Yeah. But I but I do use it on my heavy tripod and with a leveling head as well. So I think it's uh, so it's but it is a fantastic head. But there's so many options now. That's it, it is good to have. Yeah, but the gear, yeah. geared head. The thing I really like about the geared head is, like you were saying, the, the precision and be able, be able to go back to a, a photograph and just alter it slightly rather than releasing a bull head and trying to work out where you were. Or yeah, yeah. I was just yeah. thinking we that have, this this have... this conversation would be of of absolutely no use whatsoever to Mark Littlejohn, <laughs> <laughs> who is his own oh, tripod, really. <clears throat> I, was I believe just... he has used a tripod. Oh, 1982, I think, wasn't it? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> um, I was just thinking. Do you remember the Benbows, the 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 old Benbow? Oh yes, tripod. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which always seemed to me like like trying to get an octopus into a string bag, making it get the legs in the right position. Very so. weird, very weird tripod design. But it's kind of cool for some things, and it was rather it's good for working in shallow water because of the inverse design. So yeah, the doesn't... the legs. Were inside out basically, weren't yeah, they? So they, uh -huh. yeah. So so they didn't telescope. Uh, the thick end of the section is at yeah. the bottom, so you, you could work in salt water and it didn't get into the joint. That's quite yeah. handy. Yeah, it was. I think the, the guy died. I think did he? And then they stopped making it. I can't remember now. Is that, is right? that fighting with a tripod? I don't think he died in combat with the tripod. No, <laughs> <laughs> but he. I think he owned the patent on it, didn't he? And I think. Um, I think it died with him. I think. Right. I think that's right. I might. I might. I might have made that up. Have either of you ever used these tri these tripods that have a, a crossbar? I think one of the Manfrotto's and one of the Gitzos does it, where you can have the um, instead of a centre column, it goes up and down. It goes sideways, so you can have the camera offset to one side. I've never owned one, but there have been a fair number of people on workshops who've had them, so I have I have experience <laughs> with them. Yeah, and they and they they're pretty good. Yeah, they're they're very good for for doing you know like a fine detail um, pointing straight down um, without quite often you get legs. It's very difficult to get the legs of the tripod uh, in a position where they're not in the way um, unless yeah. you've got a really tall tripod and then you spread the legs a long way. Um, so the the sidebar. Um, uh, system works very well for for being able to shoot a detail on the beach or something. It's, it's Trying to get the positioning right. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. yeah well, actually, that, that's um, a very interesting lead-in, David, because you you mentioned tall, and actually, you know, one of the things that that we haven't discussed, but which is critical, because after all, this conversation started out with the with Tim, your eleven tripods and Rannick Moore, which are all travel tripods, which presumably are not that tall. But, but I. I my selection criteria is about 1.3 metres high. Yeah, yeah. So, well, th that's fair yeah. enough. And, and we know that it's a trade-off, don't we? I mean, that's, that's really yes. fundamental uh, to, to the decisions that you make in tripod use and purchase. And I must admit, I have got more than one tripod, so I have a choice. But I actually really only like to go out with my, with my favourite tripod, which is the tallest. And it's, uh, I forget which model number, it is a JIT, so it's a fairly, fairly new one. I've had it for two or three years. And and it's a but it's the first one that I I've had in recent years that that went over two meters quite comfortably. And you might you might easily think I think when you you you're trying to decide which which tripod should I buy, most people will think well one and a half meters is the height I need because by the time I've got the head on and the tripod on, even if they're relatively tall, it, it won't be too far off eye level. But actually, having a tripod that's another two or three feet above eye level is enormously useful in landscape photography for all sorts of problem solving situations and you know including the ones of well what if it looks better from seven foot high because mm. you know quite often you can get some really special compositions that way but mainly it's because you can also stand on a rock in the river let's say or by the beach and and get a comfortable 
compositional position by simply having the the legs quite where below where you're standing. So that's that's really yeah. the point. I, I thought I wouldn't when when I got bought um, my tripod by a friend and they they bought one of these. I think it's a, an XLS version. It's the tallest three series. Yeah. I thought well I'm, I'll, I might use it occasionally, but I can't see it happening. You know, I'd have to be standing on a big rock. But I've found that I'm probably about one in four photographs. I'm using the full extent of at least one leg, usually going down a hill or I've, or I have found a rock to stand on or a wall to stand on. Uh, and it, it solves so many problems or, or next to a river and you've got one leg that you want to put into the side of the river or. Yeah, even span, span onto a boulder in yes. the middle of the river. Yeah, yeah. 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 And that's particular. It's particularly true if if you eschew a centre column, and I think it's fair to say that the majority of landscape professional landscape photographers do that. They go for the systematic, jitso or the really right stuff equivalent, with a flat plate. And I I remember reading Galen Rowell's uh, first light book back in about 1985 86, and he he had a I forget, it's a Leica tilt-all, I think it was called, tripod. And he said the first thing he did when he bought it was chop the centre column off and welded, because he, he, he was a car mechanic at the time, welded the um, what was left of the centre column to the tripod so that he would never have to think about vibration or loss of, of, uh, of stability because of the centre column. The centre column is inevitably a little bit of a weak point. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I th I think it was always a last resort, lifting the central center column. If uh, yeah. only, if you only get the height by doing that. So yeah, yeah. I, I I have the same as you. I have a systematic flat plate, um, and uh, and of course getting low as as well as getting high. You know, you get the you get the tripod flat on the deck. On those, the the legs are actually absolutely flat, aren't they? If they're really good for that. The way out. Really yeah. good for that. Yeah, yeah. Out of, it, out of interest, you have multiple tripods, Joe. How often or when do you decide not to use the tallest tripod you have? Uh, well, that's a good question. Probably for uh, ship-based tours. Uh, and, or, and sometimes if I want to just go for a walk with a, with a small camera uh, I'm, and I, d I don't want to be weighed down, then, yeah, I might, I might uh, take the light tripod. But the ship tours mainly because then you don't you don't have many opportunities to use a tripod and often uh the the final leg of the journey if it's on a small plane taking a big tripod is a bit of a problem um yeah. you know carry on luggage and all that um but but almost all other circumstances i do prefer to use a bigger one yeah and and actually it, it, sorry in terms just that you know with one might think well what if you only you know use an a7 series sony or or similar I don't know Fuji XT or the modern mirrorless Canon and Nikon lens cameras are very small and compact so you, surely you could say you don't need a big tripod for that but actually a big tripod is still great for using with a small camera and these small cameras after all the you know they're very powerful uh, high resolution and you know they'll show you if there's any vibration because of the resolution so actually it's just as strong an argument for using them a big tripod with them as well yeah I've got the um, my tripod is very similar to yours, Joe. I don't know. Model numbers. You mentioned model numbers briefly. Gitso have the most ridiculous <laughs> system of model numbers. I don't know how anybody could ever follow what their system of model numbers is. They seem to change it about every three minutes. But anyway, whatever it is, it's, it's very similar to yours. And um, it was bought originally for the 5.4, but now used with the Sony. And I haven't been tempted to get a smaller tripod because... It would I would have less less flexibility. I mean, it's it's yeah. always a, a an interesting discussion to have with um, participants on workshops when they're beginners because they come in usually with a tripod that's quite flimsy, uh, which really annoys them and gets in the way, and they and they they're very reluctant to use a tripod. And then they'll see other people in the group who have a a more competent piece of equipment and. Um, and then they slowly come around to the idea that they actually need to spend a bit of money on a tripod. There's a big reluctance to spend money on a tripod, and they, you know, it's not cheap. So the yeah. D D forehead and my tripod is a fifteen hundred, eighteen hundred pound combination or something like that. Um, it's a lot, a lot of money. Um, but on the other hand, I've had it for like seven or eight years now. I expect it to go on for another few years, and um, so it's a long term purchase. Whereas if you buy a cheap tripod, it probably 
doesn't last you very long and then you buy a slightly better tripod you end up spending the same amount of money i think but just in stages yeah. and throwing tripods away with gay abandon in between <laughs> i think my i think you're right my tripod's about the same value as my camera this sort of, and I, I don't begrudge that especially um, I, sh- I should mention with the gitsos they do a fantastic spare parts and i have repaired all the leg sections so the, i think the end sections i've uh, damaged at some point so they've all been replaced at some point in time and you can rebuild the tripod essentially even though it's 10 years old over 10 years yeah you just have to find out what the model number is because the the all the, a lot of the parts look almost identical but they're not yeah. So I had to I had to get the um the little packing pieces the the little plastic shims that are inside oh, yeah. the legs because yeah. they wear eventually, and I had to find the original invoice so I knew what model number it was because you go and look on their website and there's a <laughs> bewildering array of these things that look exactly the same but they're not, <laughs> um but you know it's good and and in fact it's much better than it used to be because they used to insist that you sent it back to them to repair, which you had to pay somebody to do something that was not a difficult task yes yeah so Very, it's a great system great yeah. system yeah it is it, it is absolutely but I, I was i was just saying before before this starts to sound like a, a, a kind of jitsu uh, advertising promotional campaign Other tripods are available. say that and also <laughs> tim I, I think i believe i'm right in saying that your recent test you you were actually impressed with quite a few of the tripods on that weren't you and tell us a little bit about yeah. that well, I think there's there's definitely been a a little bit of a, um, a revolution in Chinese manufacturers. I mean, there's, there there is inevitably some absolute ripoffs. Uh, one of the tripods that I ended up buying, which I thought was fantastic, was a Leo Photo, and and I think it's it's pretty much a really right stuff uh, copy. However, uh, really right stuff are an incredibly expensive brand, and if if somebody can make a copy for less than 10% of the price of something else, then it's possibility that the, the other one is overpriced. Uh, having said that, there are companies like Faisal, a German company, who, who produce very basic looking carbon fiber tripods, but they're incredibly stiff and very light for what they are. And I think you, you quite liked the look of one of those when you came up to visit. Sure. I did. And I was actually interesting. You mentioned China because we know that most carbon fiber tubes seem to be manufactured there these days. But were the Faisal ones made in China or are they from Germany than Germany itself? I, sus- I suspect that the, the, the tubes are made in China. There seems to be huge plants producing these basic raw products. So, I mean, they might, might be in Germany. They don't say on the website because I think the country of origin is the last uh, major change in a product so if you if you buy all the parts in from china and then put them together it's still considered made in in, in germany or wherever yeah yeah i mean uh, there, there, there are a fair few brands where you you look on the net and they're totally different names of tripods but you can actually see it's exactly the same design yeah um, definitely yeah um made i mean that, that happened with a cube the, the Arca Cube was copied by a company. Well, let's say it wasn't copied by a, a company in China because Arca had it made in China. And as soon as they'd finished making it, the company carried on without telling them and started selling them directly. Right. Uh, instead, of, instead of £1,600, they were selling them for £200. Hmm. Yeah, well, Which you know, is... the, 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 um, the leg design of the really right stuff is very similar to the leg design of the Gitso, isn't it? So um... Yes. Inspired uh, by, yeah, I, I don't see a, I don't see a problem with a certain amount of, of uh, inspiration. It's, um, I mean, at the end of the day, it's it's not rocket science. A lot of this, it's a, a set of carbon fiber tubes with an aluminium or magnesium head hmm. built onto it. But there is so much choice now, and there's there's another company that's just coming out called Buddies Man, um, which are making sort of higher quality than the, the the typical Chinese carbon fiber, maybe sort of slightly sub gitso esque quality. And I've just got one of those to trial. So there's, there's a hell of a lot more choice than there used to be. Yeah, well, yeah. that's good. I mean, the, the fortunate thing is that generally this cheap manufacturing is just is, is obviously good, quote unquote, good for consumers, because, you know, it helps to keep prices down and make the products affordable. But it is also interesting to know. And I mean, I'm sure that we'd agree that none of us would want to be buying anything that was made with modern day slavery or anything like that. So, yeah, I would be interested to know if, um, you know, if there was any any kind of 
scrutiny of, of the processes and, and the plants in the industry in China. And that is the one problem with China is very difficult to, uh, you know, to, to find out uh, how things are made and, and why they can be done so cheaply. Definitely, definitely. And, and I think a couple of the companies, interestingly, you can track back to major distributors that are making some of these products anyway. So even maybe the Gitso products are being made by the same companies, essentially. Oh, I, think that, I think that's yeah. been common for a long time, hasn't it? I remember um, uh, oh, Matt from Robert White, I think it was, came on one of our large format workshops, Joe, and he had a he had a book with lots of different um, magnifying loops for 5.4 cameras, um, all made by the same company in China, but you could go and buy them branded as, you know, Linhoff or whoever. They were, you know, if you make loops you make loops, you might as well sell them to lots of different people. And I think that's always been the case that people will, you know, get the, the um, expertise to make a particular kind of thing and then sell that on. So that's that's fine. We haven't talked about spikes or feet or anything yet, have we? Yes. Yeah. Interesting, because I've just written an article about it and me and Joe have discussed this before. But let's start with you, David. And uh, the, the idea behind um, spikes on tripods, because I know when I started, I, I had the usual rubber. In fact, the first tripods I had didn't have replaceable tips on them anyway, so you didn't have any choice. I think they used to have like a bonded rubber Cup yeah. that was just glued to the bottom of the leg, didn't they? Basically, um, a dust preventer, I think. Or yeah, soil, and then yeah. and then there was a, there was a sort of slight adjustment to that is that Manfrotto's brought out feet that um, you could screw up and down, which I didn't really see the point of that, since the whole point about a tripod is that it it will always be stable. If you put the fourth leg in, then you need to be able to adjust. But if there's only if there's only three, you don't need to worry about that. So um, I have. Uh, the long jitsu um, spikes uh, and I use them in all circumstances uh, they're brilliant especially in the UK um, landscape where you're like on heather moorland or something that's boggy because you can really uh, kind of get good purchase on the uh, on the terrain um, but I also find they work perfectly well on sand or uh, on on rock as well I know some people think that they might kind of skit a little bit around on rock but I've never found that that's particularly a problem uh, you might need to kind of adjust the angle of one of the legs so that you get um, better purchase um, but because there's they're so uh, the tripods are now so sort of flexible in that respect I find that the spikes are the the best I don't want to kind of be away and then thinking about what should I take cup feet or rock um, claws or a whole bunch of other things with me i only want to take one thing basically because if i'm traveling with in a plane i don't want to have a oh do you, do you remember that we used to travel in planes didn't we um, <laughs> um i don't want to i don't want to have to take all of those kind of different things with me so yeah. i'm 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 perfectly happy with the the spikes they cost quite a lot of extra money i seem to remember but again it's a lifetime purchase so um yeah and there, there are quite a few third-party spikes available now if you go on, on to because uh, I bought some for my little travel tripod little th three inch ones and then some four inch ones for the medium tripod so but I think they're about like say about 70 pound for a set of three for, from Gits or something like that yeah I think my, mine were 80 something but that was like eight or nine years ago so yeah mm. I, d I don't know um, how much they are now um, but uh, yeah so they've they've survived lots of kind of being abused by being kind of um, uh, you know kind of stuck between narrow clefts in rocks and things like that and they yeah. show no sign of snapping or anything so well, i think that's one i have broken a leg doing that before now have you uh, right yeah just but well, actually pop, popped out the end piece of plastic on the carbon fiber rather than broken the carbon fiber itself but yeah a little bit annoying i've, I've gone worse than that tim I've, I've actually managed to break the the lower leg of a, of a tripod with a steel spike oh, as wow. well in the past because of of the long spike so yeah, but kind of I mean that creates an incredible amount of leverage, and they're much stronger than the carbon fiber from a is it torsional strength point of view, uh, which is why yeah. that can happen. I mean, carbon fiber is really strong, but if you stress it in the wrong way, then it cracks. So yeah. Mm. Well, you've you've been doing an, an an experiment in not using spikes, I believe, for the last couple of years. Well, I so. have. I yeah. I, was just, I just came up with a brilliant excuse for why I do, actually, because, I mean, when listening to David, I'm thinking, why don't I still use long steel spikes? Because I do think they're very, very good. No no question about it. 
Um, my last tripod actually came uh, as, as with a standard fitted um, uh, articulating big fat rubber foot on it. So yeah, they call the big feet from right, Pixar, right. Yeah. Um, and initially, I was like, oh, blimey, that's uh, I didn't want that. Um, but anyway, I, I couldn't I couldn't be bothered to send it back. So I, I just started using them, and I found ninety nine percent of the time it was it was fine. Certain certain uh, conditions they were very very good for, um, and so on balance, I was finding myself thinking, well, I'll just leave them, um, and so and that's what I've done, and I'm still using them today. And actually, because this last year, I've been working on a project where I had to do some interiors at virtually every location I went to. You know, if you're in somebody's rather nice wooden floor, steel, <laughs> sharp steel spikes are not ideal. Um, so actually the big rubber pad feet are very good for that. Um, so they, they've been uh, uh, been fine. Um, I, I will agree with David that on balance, if I if I had only one type of, of uh, foot, then I think a long steel spike is, they are superb and they're particularly good for, for Heather Moorland, which is, you know, where, where we live in North Yorkshire. Um, it's great, uh, and and it's same for, same for you, Tim, in uh, oh, Scotland. Things, yeah, yeah, yeah. But but I mean, as I say, ninety nine percent of the time, if your technique's good, you can usually do a little bit of a workaround with the with the with the rubber feet as well. Yeah, because when we were doing the big camera comparison between ten eight and five four, we took a I think it was a five series with just rubber feet and just a bit of kicking into the ground to stay, to compress it before the leg went down. And, and then yeah. pushing it down. Yeah, it's we fine. We took the equivalent of a 500 megapixel picture uh, with no problem. In wind as well, I should yeah, add. Yeah, with a fairly windy day. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So, um, gen- generally, I would say spikes would still be a better solution if you are going out in the in the landscape more often. Um, have you do do you have a loop? Have, have you ever lost spikes when you've been out, or do you lock tight them into the tripod or? They're not loctited in. They, the, um, to put them in my case when I, you know, that mythical plane flight that we were talking about earlier, <laughs> um, the um, the tripod won't fit in the bag unless I take the spikes off. Uh, so, yeah. so I have to undo them. Um, and so that, that means I have to make sure that I've got the spanner with me when I get to the other end. Um, uh, and they do sometimes vibrate loose, um, if like in Iceland where you're, going around on um, rough roads or washboard washboard roads in the in the states or in Namibia or somewhere like that so I, you need to tighten them up sometimes but I've I've never lost one no no and I but I know that feet do get uh, there was a particular Manfrotto model name and or number escapes me now that a lot of people seem to lose the feet off them so there would seem to be some weakness in the design um but um it, it is it does happen yeah so kind of general maintenance of the tripod is really um, important actually making sure that if you've been on the beach and you've got salt water in it that you you wash that out of an evening um, you know and and if you've been out in it's very wet conditions that you extend the tripod completely and let it dry out back in the hotel or back at home afterwards um, that, that was an interesting anecdote about the, um, the I think it was the oceanic Gitzo ocean tripod Right. Um, that that they had all the seals on it and everything, um, and they stopped making it because it was actually still suffering because the seals were keeping water in. They couldn't keep the water out completely, uh, and right. it was the carbon carbon fiber swells with seawater exposure. So does it? If people if people right. were going out once a week, they were basically locking water into the tripod that stayed there all year round. Yeah, that's so you'd no have good. to take the legs apart basically to. I think right. you always have to take them apart to let them dry out. I don't think right. you need to wash them. This is an interesting thing is the salt doesn't tend to wear things out as much, but you definitely need to let them dry out. No, I mean, with aluminium tripods, it's it's a, more of an issue, isn't it? Yeah. With the, especially with the, the joint on the on something like the shit, so where you've got that, that thread and you get salt yeah. water in there, it's not... It starts expanding run. and going horrible. Yeah, I've, yeah. I've got a little anecdote which uh, which basically confirms what David was saying uh, a few min- a minutes ago, uh, which is if you do, if you don't if you forget to dry your tripod out, having had a, a session out in the wet, which, which happened to me the following morning, I went out before sunrise, and it was minus five, and 
I, I got to my first location, tried to set the tripod up, and it was frozen solid. So I, I literally had to just hold my hand on the joints and while it warmed up, and then eventually it did free up. But it was pretty frustrating because the light was really good, and I was thinking, come on, oh dear. So yeah, that's a very important point. And it's an important point for maintenance reason generally, but um, yeah, you can get that freezing problem as well. Yeah, I, mean, I always tell people not to leave the tripod in the car overnight if it's going to be below freezing. They've been out in the wet because mm. it's not, you know, that, that thing will happen where they're frozen and they don't work anymore. I think that that was the problem. I brought the tripod into the house. So my, my, my assumption was, and I was knackered because it had been a very long day the previous day. Um, and I, I just didn't think of it, uh, of setting it up, as you described, extend the legs, leave it to dry out overnight like that. Um, so I, I just, when I got down in the morning, I just, you know, it was fine, uh, put it into the car, but because it was so cold, it just froze, you know, as soon as I got out of the car and, and, and started walking. Um, so that can that can happen too. But yeah, it's, it's certainly if you leave it in the car, it's a disaster. Mm. As, as a final question about tripods is, we've mentioned Mark Littlejohn already, who tends not to use a tripod. With cameras becoming so good uh, at, the, at, let's say, ISO 640 or something like that, or a thousand, you can take handheld shots all the way almost up to twilight. Um, do, you, do you see much use for a tripod uh, during the daytime or, or the hours when the, the light's pretty good? Do you want to go you first, first, David? Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'll go first then. <laughs> well, I think for, for me, honestly, I, I've, I've realized, that's a very good question, Tim, because it really does beg the whole question, why do you photograph the way that you do? Um, and, and I personally, uh, I just like using a tripod. I don't know if it's just because it's a habit, but I honestly think it helps me make better photographs. Not not because of, yes, of course, it holds the camera rock steady, which is great. And you can work in any kind of lighting you want with it. Um, but but if we, let's say, thinking of Mark uh, and, and how he works, part of his genius is that he is very organic in the way that he develops composition using his body as the stand and i've seen him that you know he's very very careful so it's not that he's slap happier by not using a tripod on the contrary he's very very careful but he the way he does it it's much there's a kind of fluidity about the way he develops a composition for me i i tend to sort of establish my parameters before i set the tripod up um and and so i i've got a fairly strong idea of, of where i want to be so the tripod is the last part of the process but it's important and I enjoy the process of setting up in exactly the right position and then fine tuning that composition until everything feels just right to me. Um, and it wouldn't be the same if I, if I didn't have it. I don't think I'd enjoy it as much. So it's mainly enjoyment is the, is the answer to the question. Uh, yeah, I think that that's all fairly similar for me. Um, I actually find it very difficult to shoot handheld. Um, I've, I've I did used to do documentary photography many, many years ago when I was at, at college and soon afterwards, and, and that was all handheld stuff. Um, and I probably could get back into shooting handheld if I really tried, but I, I just get very frustrated that the picture I've taken, I haven't framed quite right. You know, oh, well, if I'd only taken the time to frame it, and I, and I don't seem to be able to do that working handheld, whereas if I've got the tripod, then I spend a lot of time thinking like Joe about where I'm going to set it up and I remember we had a conversation with um, Paul Wakefield at one of the on landscapes and and basically he said before he ever gets the camera out he's worked out exactly where he wants the camera to be and he sets up the tripod exactly and he puts the camera on it and he said that he very rarely moves it from that position just you know fine fine tuning from there um, and I'm more inclined to work like that um, it's it's there are advantages both ways, I think. I mean, um, Mark put up a post earlier this week talking about how he um, he kind of envies people who spend a lot of time um, working to, to really refine something, but that's not the way that he works, that he, he reacts and he wants to have the fluidity to react quickly. Um, I wish that I could work like him, but I when I try to, I don't make images that satisfy me. So... Um, I, th I think it's a lot of it is about outlook. I think. I'd, yeah, I mean, I I'd agree. I I because I've been doing a lot of walking. I've gone out and not taken a tripod, 
quite a few times and I've had the, the camera clipped to my rucksack. Um, and I don't take the same sort of pictures. It's not essentially there's one better than the other. It's, it's essentially a different process and you produce different different work from that, I think. And, uh, they, and, and it did take some time to do that. At first, I found it very difficult. Um, I'd, I'd feel that, like you probably meant your thinking, David, that pictures are snatched rather than planned in a way. It's it's not quite true, but it's it can no, feel like No, not so that. much snatched, but I just um, I find it difficult to to assess that situation fast enough. But I but I know that I miss a lot of things. And I, but I think that um, Mark Mark's just getting a hammering here, isn't he? No, he's not. Really. We're admiring him. <laughs> but I, but I know that Mark. Um, uh, is able to make that assessment very quickly, and I don't think my thought processes are fast enough. I tell you that. what, we'll bring we'll bring Mark in for the next podcast video. When we hey, ask good him idea. Directly. Good idea. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No. Uh, but the one, I mean, the thing I really like about using a tripod is being able to walk away from the, the the work you're doing and think about something else for a bit, and then come back and reassess a picture. And that's the biggest thing I miss, I think, when I don't use a tripod. Yeah, to, then you can just do that fine tuning thing. But also, if you're making multiple exposures because you're trying to say photograph a process and like waves crashing or something, and you don't know which one's going to be right, if you're handheld, you can almost guarantee that the one where the wave is brilliant is the one where you've got the framing slightly wrong, or at least in <laughs> yeah. my experience anyway, because I'm you know, maybe just you know um, superb incompetence. But you know that's how I feel. About it. <laughs> One one well, more, one more thing, sorry Tim, because you mentioned yeah. you mentioned leaving the tripod, which I think I agree with, by the way, greatly. But just a, a little note of warning: um, when you when you do that, just make sure it's not too windy, because uh, yes. I have twice in my career had a tripod blow over with a camera on it because I've walked away from it, gusty winds and all that. So yeah, uh, yeah it can happen. Likewise, you need to be careful. Yeah, or or also uh, on a beach with incoming waves. I've had um, I've had a group when I was in um, uh, Pembrokeshire once, and um, very flat beaches, and the, a wave came a long way further up the beach than we were expecting, and people all ran me. backwards from their tripods, and yeah. and I was I was screaming, "No, go back, <laughs> go back!" Because I knew that as the wave went out, all the tripods were going to sink forwards. Sink. Yeah, so. Um, so they were, you know, they're trying to keep their feet dry, but really that's not what's important in that situation. Yeah. And with that, I think that's uh, another great podcast. Thank you very much, David and Joe. Thanks, Tim. Thank you.